Welcome to the Tocopian podcast series. In today's episode, we speak with Guy Kirkwood of UiPath about automation, AI, RPA, the birth rate, and what the workplace may look like in the next few years. Uh, my name is Guy Kirkwood. Um, I um, am the chief evangelist of uh, UiPath. Um, I've been with the company um, pretty much since it started. I joined in December 2015 uh, when we were 26 people uh, and we've grown quite significantly since then. Um, the role of chief evangelist is, uh, I, I describe as the best job and the worst job title in the world. Um, it's the best job because I get to um, tell the story about UiPath and automation and robotic process automation and uh, artificial intelligence and all of that, that good stuff. Um, but more importantly, I get to listen. Uh, so uh, talking to um, uh, people who are au fait and uh, ahead of the market, like Michael, um, is, uh, is something that's very important to us because I can then feed that back into our organization, into our product team, sales and marketing, um, and so on and so forth. Um, the bad thing about uh, the job title is that uh, I have uh, an inordinate number of people on LinkedIn who, uh, who get in touch and say that they're so pleased that Jesus has entered my life. And I have to explain, I'm not really that type of evangelist. So, um, but it's great to be with you, Michael. Thanks very much for inviting me. My name is Michael Baxter. I'm the editor-in-chief of Techopian. Guy, it's great to speak to you. Let's get straight into the questions. Guy, why do you think the um, 2020s could be like the 1920s? Um, appetite and function of COVID. Uh, I think is, is are two of the things that are driving that. Um, appetite, we see everything that's going on in the world with regards to a, a new development of, of technology, of um, organizations, uh, transnational organizations, um, and indeed individual uh, companies, um, you know, the fangs of the world effectively, um, that have huge resources behind them. And there's a real appetite to move not just themselves on, but humanity on. And I think that that is going to be what marks out the 2020s. Um, you know, before we started recording, the, 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 the one thing we've got to make sure is that 2029 doesn't end up like 1929 or the 1930s or the 2030s as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the, the 1930s. But nevertheless, um, I think that there is pent up uh, demand for uh, for to spend some of the money that people have saved. You know, I recognize that a lot of places around the world are still right at the peak of, of the COVID um, outbreak and, you know, thoughts and prayers with, with India particularly. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of colleagues uh, and their families uh, who are directly affected by COVID still, still in India. Um, but nevertheless, you know, if you look at the, at the post-industrial nations effectively, were those that have been more effective in um, in inoculating, uh, vaccinating their uh, their populace? Um, there is a store of of impetus of of appetite and uh, and money that's been stored that will come out. And I'll give you two examples as to why that uh, 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 of of where we're seeing that right now. So one is um, is Rolls Royce. So Rolls Royce motor cars pretty much has never made any money. Um, but actually, in Q1 of 2021, um, they've sold they've or, the, the order book for Gros Royce is larger in Q1 um, of 2021 than it has ever been. Um, so there are a lot of people buying Rolls Royces. I am not one of them. I'm not that big of a fan, actually, I have to say. But um, but those uh, those cars have uh, are basically flying off the production line. Um, or when the chips are sorted out, that is, anyway. Um, the second thing is um, I'm uh, a big fan of Dylan Thomas. And um, I was trying to book a, or it was due to book a, a ticket for um, Under Milk Wood, which is taking place in the National Theatre in London um, in July later. In, uh, and there was a gap between the box office opening and me being able to call because, or get online because uh, I was in a meeting. Um, in that 15 minutes, every single seat of every single performance was sold out um, for the entire run. Now, that demonstrates that people want 
to spend more time looking outside of themselves, looking outside of, of what we have had to put up with the last 16 months. So that appetite, I think, is going to drive a huge increase in, in economic activity over uh, you know, now and as we go through the mid-2020s. Do you think that could lead to um, runaway inflation or will technology mean that the economy, you know, production can rise with this pent up demand? Yeah, it's that, it's that old it's that old chestnut about, you know, as we become more efficient, the production actually uh, productivity drops. Um, you know, I'll come to automation in a bit, but but um, I think that the expectations of the optimists is always that things will change as a result of technology. Fundamentally, I don't agree with that. I think that human human nature being what it is, um, that you know, as organisations uh, become more effective, more efficient, uh, that productivity per capita um, potentially will continue to fall. Um, that's just the way that humans operate. You know, classic example. So um, when talk about automation now, when you do a, uh, a process mining activity, so you're working out what, you know, how, how a process actually works, um, you've got the, the output from the process mining, which is, looks at the system locks. So it looks at what actually has happened as a result of, of going through the process. Um, that's from a technology standpoint. You also need task capture. So in other words, you need to figure out what the human input was to actually drive that output, um, you know, down to the keystroke level or uh, mouse clicks or whatever it might be. Um, and we found time after time after time, in fact, every time, that uh, even people doing the same task, um, normally in the same way, all do it differently. Um, because humans cheat, you know, they find easy ways of doing things. So that's just the way we are. Uh, that's part of our intelligence and part of our adaptability. And, and so, you know, expanding it out to, to the broader economy, um, I think that technology is a facilitator of efficiency. It is not a facilitator of productivity. So how has the automation market changed over the last five years? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a question. Um, massively and not at all. Um, let me explain that. So automation uh, of all types has been around for decades. In fact, automation, physical automation, has been around for you know thousands of years. Um, you know, pulleys and levers have been around for... Uh, or since you know ancient Greek times, um, automation in terms of replicating or emulating is probably the right word. Um, what humans do in a, an office environment um, is uh, has only been around really since about the mid two thousands. Um, so um, robotic process automation, uh, which for those people that don't know, has nothing to do with robots uh, or physical robots anyway. Um, although, you know, when we first started, we did get questions as to how do you stop the robots pressing the screen too hard? We just have to explain it's not really that type of robot. Um, so robotic process automation was actually invented um, in 2002 by um, uh, Blue Prism, uh, which is one of our competitors based in the UK. Um, and the, the name RPA was invented by Pat Geary, who is the CMO of uh, Chief Marketing Officer of, uh, of Blue Prism, and uh, by an analyst called Phil First. They came up with the acronym of, uh, of RPA. Um, but really, the market didn't really start to take off until about 2016, early 2016, 2017, I suppose. Um, and, uh, and what's happened since then is that organizations have realized that um, if they can remove the, the you know, what we term as the boring, mundane, repetitive, mind-numbing activity of moving information through between systems, um, which is what we humans tend to do in the office, um, then it provides a lot of benefit to the company. What we didn't realize, and this is really the change that's happened over the last five years, is that the value of automation isn't anything to do with the technology, isn't anything to do with, with the value to the business. The value of automation is the value of the individual human worker. Um, our chief executive co-founder, uh, Daniel Dinez, um, 
uses the word joy. Now, who the hell uses the word joy when they're talking about work? But if you remove all of the repetitive activity that you need to do your job, you know, opening spreadsheets and pulling information from different uh, applications and logging into multiple things and, and opening documents and reading, reading what's in them and, and shuffling that stuff across, which to be frank is what a lot of people's work is. Um, if you remove that, then it allows you to do the more strategic, more human work. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've been talking with uh, Craig LeClaire about, uh, our forester, we can talk about him uh, in a bit, um, is about how work is changing so it becomes much more human-centric. He describes it as, as basically there are certain personas, um, uh, and there are, I think there are about 12, but he's reduced that down to three buckets um, in his new book. Um, bucket number one is the world in which you and I and um, and the majority of people that are going to be listening to this uh, to this or watching this this podcast um, uh, and we are the digital elite uh, and that makes us sound grander than we are but it's the people that are actually driving the activity in in uh, in IT uh, and in business so we are the we are the digital elite the second group are the uh, you know the the what do you was squeeze middle squeeze middle for for uh, British polit politicians means something different but the squeeze middle is are those those people who do their jobs on a day to day basis um, and they feel under pressure um, and they're working in offices we talked a bit about the, the you know the industrial revolutions it's the people that that work in the office that aren't part of the management aren't part of the of that of that moving business forward, but they're just you know the worker bees basically, and then you have the third tier, which is the you know would nominally would be seen as the substrata. This is the this is the jobs of working with your hands. That could be you know working in uh, in healthcare. It could be working in um, in uh, in farming, whatever it might be. Um, and actually, one thing that I that in, those, in that conversation that I think um, is going to happen potentially is that that we're going to see a switch in um, the uh, in the way that people think about these jobs. I think you said recently that you don't think we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. I think you said something along the lines of we're in the first era of de-industrialization. I don't know if I got you right there. Um, yeah. What do you mean by yeah, that? This is a conversation I was having um, with uh, Craig Clare. So Craig Clare is, uh, is um, uh, the sort of leading um, light within Forrester, um, one of the analyst firms, on automation. And he wrote a very good book uh, called Into the Night, um, which was about um, uh, the advent of automation and what impact it would have on work. Um, extremely good, you can look it up on Amazon. Um, he's actually in the process of, uh, of putting together his second book. Um, and he interviewed me for, for that. And we were talking about how, you know, if you, if you look back to when I started at UiPath, I did, uh, I did a little video, um, which was all about, um, if you can look it up online, um, where, where I was in a, um, a, a pumping station um actually in london and um there were big steam engines behind me so i was talking about how the industrial revolutions of which there were four really um were um had developed so from an agrarian economy into you know people move from from the fields into factories um and then from factories and the mines and the the, the docks into into offices so that was the first industrial revolution to the second industrial revolution third industrial revolution was all about technology um and the and the advent of the uh, of the electricity and industrial age uh, and then the fourth industrial revolution which you know everyone has been talking about for the last decade i suppose is is the move towards um the the intelligent um uh, industrial revolution which is all about artificial intelligence and automation and all the rest of that sort of stuff um and i was talking to craig and i was saying you know, i was saying we were talking about the fourth industrial revolution i said actually 
if 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 you think about the way that um, the history is written, you find these single points that you know, like a like a pinprick on a on a balloon. Um, the inner of itself means absolutely nothing, but actually, that is the single point trigger that triggers off an entirely new way of thinking, either burst the balloon or whatever. You know, mixing my metaphors horribly. So. For the first industrial revolution, that was the invention of the spinning jenny, um, because that was the first time that a machine was created that did the work of multiple people, multiple men in this case, actually. Um, and, uh, and so that was the start of the first industrial revolution. Now, I think the pinprick for the fourth industrial revolution is going to have reverse effect, and that is COVID because COVID isn't a, isn't a disease, um, but a movement, I believe. I think it's actually going to trigger a move from the offices. So we move from the fields to the factories, to the offices. And I think in a lot of cases, people are gonna move back out of the offices. They're gonna move back to um, you know, a more balanced life. You look at you look at the big banks. You look at the big law firms. You know that they, they, they have been through the the hell of working hundred hour weeks plus. Um, so they expect all the juniors to do that. But the juniors are now saying, "Hang on, I've been working from home. In fact, I might, as you said with Rob, you know, I I've never even met the people I'm working with. I joined a year ago and I've worked from home on my own. I'm very efficient at what I do." Uh, there is no reason that I'm going to get on a slam door train. Actually, there are no slam door trains anymore. Shows my age. You go, get on a train in the morning and, and go up to London um, at six o'clock in the morning and, 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 and then not get back until dark o'clock at night. Um, that I don't have to do that anymore. So before the first industrial revolution, we had cottage industries. So people were effectively working from home. Then we all migrated into factories. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of reversing, there won't be cottage industries as such, but it will be reversing a trend that is probably 200 years in the making. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and when, I, when we talk about cottage industries, I'm not talking about cottages, you know, the economies are built and run on entrepreneurial activity. Yeah. Um, and those and entrepreneurs, can be you know, anywhere in any circumstance. <clears throat> so when we're talking about the advent of technology, there are two things that I think are really, really exciting at the moment. One is um, the fact that you know the, the large organisations, the the, the um, Elon Musk and his activity of putting satellites into low orbit, um, Amazon, uh, Bezos doing the same thing. Um, uh, that will enable internet connection to anyone anywhere in the world. So that's point one. Point two is that we already know that the people with the clever ideas, the future entrepreneurs can be anywhere. And we know that because with the advent of massive open online courses, MOOCs. So MOOCs were set up by the big American universities, the Stanfords and the Harvards and the MITs. Why? Because, oh, why did they give it away? This, all these courses, the IP for that is hugely valuable and they gave it away. Why? It's because the, if you look at the Ivy League in particular, they only get their students from a very small pot. Um, and uh, a very small community of, uh, of people. Um, but they're not the people necessarily that have the really good ideas. So by spreading out these multiple, these, these MOOC courses, they were able to identify people who are really smart, really clever um, anywhere in the world, in Kazakhstan or New Zealand or Turkey or wherever, didn't matter where they were, because this was available to everybody. What they were doing was identifying the smartest people. And they would then bring those smart people to be educated for free by those big universities. Because the big universities don't make their money by educating people anymore. 
they really make their money by licensing the IP, the intellectual property that is developed jointly by the university and by the students. So Stanford make, I think it's $1.6 billion a year from licensing. So they are turning from, a, from a, a, an educational institution into a, an idea factory. And the ideas, as I said, can come from anywhere. So if you combine both of those things, ubiquitous internet access for anywhere in the world and lifelong learning, regardless of what age you are, um, then that is extraordinarily powerful. And just to prove case in point, because I'm retiring from UiPath, I'm starting again at university in September and I'm 53 years old. Oh, and by the way, the course I'm doing, um, uh, the oldest person to have done that course was over 70. So there is no barrier. What age? Might be a barrier in terms of intelligence, but we'll find out. <laughs> Does RPA have a future is RPA's future in the past? I mean, what I mean by that is, has it fulfilled the promise of a few years ago or, or is it going to fulfill the promise of a few years ago? Um, I, since we're, uh, so we're now a, a public company um, uh, and we're in a uh, what's known as a, uh, um, a quiet period um, prior to results coming out, um, I can't talk about total addressable markets. That's basically what the future of, and size of the market is because that could have a material effect on, on share prices, not only of us, but, but also of, of other organizations. So I can't talk about that. But what I can say is that we're barely started. If you look at the adoption rate of automation within organizations, you know, yes, you know, UiPath is working for eight of the of the fortune 10 companies and yes you know we're now uh, you know over 50 percent of the fortune 500 organizations are now customers of, of uipath which is pretty precipitous rise considering that you know i think we had five of the fortune 500 as customers two, three years ago i mean i don't mean five percent i mean five um so that rise has been uh, has been incredible uh, and that growth rate has been incredible um but i you know RPA's future is not behind it. RPA's future is that it will it will disappear. And I've said this for years, really, but it will disappear not because it's not going to get used. It will disappear because it's going to be used everywhere. Um, it will be just the standard way that organizations run themselves. Um, and, and the evidence of that really comes not from those large organizations that are using us today, but it's the small companies the startups, the entrepreneurial activity, um, and the work that we're doing with venture capital and private equity organizations, whereby organizations, founders are seeing um, a, that they actually can actually scale up their businesses much faster by using automation than they, are, they, they can by hiring a whole load of people. And by creating new processes from scratch that are automated, uh, that's where the real benefit. So, you know, the, 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 the old dinosaurs like me, as we, you know, move out of the market, it's the new entrepreneurial activity that will drive economies. Um, and that, all, that from the start, I think was going to be automated. Um, so, you know, that, that I think is, is going to be what we'll see over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So I suppose if you look at the history of innovation, par for the course, as it were, has been yeah. that um, innovation destroys jobs, but it creates jobs. Yeah. Um, and it seems to, as, as a general rule of thumb, it seems to create better paid jobs than the ones that were destroyed. So what's it going to be like this time? Is automation, RPA, is it going to, is, is it going to be like that? Or, or are we going to suddenly have a, a, a jobs uh, problem in a few years time? Um, you know, it would be naive in the extreme, and in fact dishonest, to say that jobs are not going to get affected or not being affected by automation. Of course they are. Um, but you're right, Michael. You know, if you look at look at the the history of of innovation, um, the the Luddites were terrified about losing their jobs, which is why they went in and broke up the frames. Um, you know, uh, Jethro Tull. Um, although I'm a big fan of the band, that wasn't how I knew about Jethro Tull. 
um, Jethro Tull with the uh, with the unionized uh, activities for around farm workers for for threshing machines. You know, all of that activity, they were they were frightened about losing their jobs, and they did lose their jobs as a result. But those people that were in, you know, did the threshing by hand and were doing the um, the weaving by hand, then moved into the factories that did it, and they were able to produce massively more. And in, you know, if you think about, you know, we're in the UK. If you think about British, the British Empire was created by those machines. It was created by the world wanting the goods that was produced by this small island off the coast of Europe. Um, now expand that out to the rest of the world, it, as organizations and as business becomes more efficient, I'm not saying more productive, but as it becomes more efficient, then jobs will undoubtedly change. There are, you know, the, there are jobs now being advertised on LinkedIn. In fact, robotic uh, wrangler or robotic, you know, um, uh, manager, um, is, because, is, is now the second highest job requirement in LinkedIn after AI specialists. Now, you know, four, four or five years ago, that job wouldn't even exist. And that's just the start. If you think about RPA being just a tool, and there are numerous other tools that organizations and individuals can use, um, then there's going to be new and better jobs, as you said, for, for people to do. Um, but that you know raises the question as to what about the people that aren't that aren't able to change that aren't able to and and we've got to make sure that we as a community we as a technology vendor we as a as a society look after those people which is why we're doing so much work with organizations like the world economic forum with the oecd with uh, the united nations with the um with the european union on making sure that we don't leave people behind. So that's all about education. It's all about upskilling and reskilling people so that they can approach life with new skills. And a great example of that actually is with um, a young adults with autism. So 80% of adults with young autism are unemployed. But the skills that, I mean, I know that's, you know, everything is on a spectrum and, you know, you've got, everyone's on the spectrum. Um, so you've got to be very careful about generalizing. But, you know, organizations like Autonomy Works and Kelly are working to train up young adults with autism to build robots because in, you know, certain circumstances, they have exactly the right attention to detail and skills necessary to do that. And they are very, very good at it indeed. So you're bringing more people into the workforce that weren't there before. And that's just one example. There's there's numerous other examples where, where uh, organizations are, and one of our competitors, Automation Anywhere, are working with, uh, with um, poor communities in rural India, for instance, um, where they are wiring them up and then you know, providing impact sourcing uh, and using automation as the, as the route to actually elevate the, the entire community's um, income potential. So this impact sourcing and the way that, and it's not charity, you know, this is, this is opportunity. Um, and that's really important, I think. Maybe it'd be a little bit like electricity. You don't turn on the electricity, you turn on the lights. You know, there isn't an electricity market. Electricity is, is, is in everything. Maybe there's an yeah. analogy there with RPA. Yes, and it's not just RPA. I mean, I, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in that, in that you know, RPA is great. Um, RPA is just a tool. You know, there's not, nothing special about it. Um, but it's just a, another tool from the toolkit. Um, many, many, many years ago, I, um, uh, I described the difference between RPA and AI as having um, different clubs in your golf bag. So you know, if the idea is to, for, the, for that process uh, to, to be more efficient, you can think of it like standing on the, on the tee of the, of the golf course um, uh, with your clubs um, and AI, you can you can think of AI as the as the nuanced activities um, that you require. That is a putter once you get onto the green, but you're still going to get to the green. Yes, you can get from the tee to the green using a putter, but it's a very inefficient way of doing it. What you need is a bloody great driver 
you know, number one would to get it off the tee and down the fairway as, as far as you possibly can. And then you need the, the irons to get over the, over the bunkers and onto the green. Um, now, you know, RPA is that driver. It gets you a long way down the fairway to the direction of travel you want to go with very little effort, you know, one swing, uh, as opposed to multiple with a, with a, with a, um, with a putter. Um, in actual fact, you know, to break the analogy completely, um, once you've got a fully operational end-to-end -end automated process, um, then actually it's like a drone that just picks up the, the golf ball from the tee, flies it straight down the fairway and drops it in the hole. Um, that's not golf anymore, but you know, it gives you an idea of what, what potentially what the future will hold. Well, maybe it will be a hole in one. It will always be a hole in one. That's entirely the point. Uh, it's no longer sport, but you know, once once we get to that point where with a flick of a switch, the light comes on, with a flick of a switch, that process is automated. Um, and we're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. Um, and where, you know, to, to use your electricity analogy, you don't even have to flick on the switch because as soon as you walk in the room, the light comes on because it knows you're there. And in the same way with automation, that every time you do something, the system will watch what you're doing. And whenever there's repli replicable activity, it will work out what that process is, what impact it will have, how it's all connected. We'll do all of that automatically and we'll build the robot for it for you automatically and just say, okay, I can automate this process for you. You don't need to do that anymore. That is the equivalent of walking into the room and the light comes on because you just happen to be in there. How will RPA benefit society? RPA itself is not going to benefit society. But RPA is part of the tools tool set that is uh, uh, or that is able to automate um, using you know rote tools using artificial intelligence and so on is going to benefit society or is benefiting society through the elevation of human activity. So if human, as I've said before, if the human isn't bogged down doing the mind-numbing, boring crap that they've had to do as part of their jobs. And by the way, the young coming into the market now um, are now saying, why on earth are you doing this in this way? And we've always done it this way is not the answer. Um, there is a real movement towards improving the lot of the employee. For the last 10, 15 years, business has all been about CX. It's all been about customer experience. Um, and so they've built bright, shiny new you know, front ends to uh, so that people, you know, buying car insurance or, you know, uh, or paying their tax or whatever has this bright, shiny new, easy to use customer experience uh, led um, view of the world. Behind that, in a lot of circumstances, you still got the poor sods who are actually manually transferring that information into, into systems. RPA and automation more generally enables people to spend more time doing with personal interaction. Um, now that drives a efficiency and increased ability to generate more revenues for the business, but more, much, much more importantly, it drives that that um, human interaction much more effectively for the individual. So CX is becoming is so important, but EX employee experience is even more important. And if I was going to say RPA drives one thing, it drives EX. RPA drives employee experience, and that's probably its greatest strength. Uh, and this is by the chief executive of one of our early earlier customers. Um, he said, and this was an insurance business. He said, since we put in automation, the mood music of our business has changed. We have happier employees and we now measure our service in terms of compliments rather than complaints. Now for insurance business, that's pretty fundamental. And for the individual working for that organization, that is pretty fundamental. That has nothing to do with technology. That is all about culture change. And that's actually what RPA produces. Can you think, I was going to say, can you think of three, but it doesn't have to be three, but can you think of use cases of AI and RPA that will make a difference to the world? 
uh, well, number one was the uh, was the uh, bringing um, neurodiverse into into work, into employment. Uh, so the the example I gave with the what Autonomy Works and, and Kelly uh, Services are doing, uh, and there you, you can you know the listeners and, and watchers can look it up online. There's a whole load of case studies on that, and it's seriously impressive. Um, second one, I suppose, um, is I think the work that it's almost a, it's, it's almost a uh, a reversal. So um, we know that unless we get it right, unless we get the 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 cultural and psychological fit right, that there will be backlash. So that's why we're working so closely with these transnational organisations, the ones I mentioned, particularly the EU actually. Um, on this, and, and my colleague Margareta Chassaro is leading this um, at, at UiPath, and she's doing a phenomenal job. So this is all about regulation, and actually, regulation of RPA and AI absolutely is required. Um, but it's the level and the risks associated with, uh, particularly AI, actually, uh, that needs to be needs to be managed. But there is a, it's easy to. Um, to over um, emphasize the risks um, and actually RPA you know right from the start you know how do you how do you stop the robots doing the wrong thing um, and uh, and going rogue you know robots don't you know and, and we've been using the word robot for 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 the last you know five ten years um, but actual fact you can think of that like digital assistance and digital assistance that's what they're going to be called I think so the digital assistant is 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 only going to do what you tell it to. Um, so it becomes it, it sort of de it becomes friendlier effectively, and that's partly why when the um, when we put together our branding for UiPath, um, they are you know friendly, cuddly, soft, squishy robots. You know it's not it's not big scary you know Terminator type stuff, um, and that was entirely deliberate. Um, and actually, our brand agency is Ogilvy, and they did a phenomenal job. Um, as soon as we saw those, the robots that we now use as um, as our uh, as our brand, uh, we knew that they they hit the nail absolutely on the head. So it's it's taking away that fear. Um, so regulation um, is coming, um, but it's managing that and managing the the um, the risks for us as an organization, but also for our customers and, and the individuals using automation is going to be really, really important, I suppose. And that's that will affect society. The Asimov thing of the th three laws of robotics, um, perhaps not relevant to, to RPA or an AI or, or, or something no, to in the future. Yeah, I mean, you know, the three rules, the three rules are, are critically important, you know, um, because in more to do because we're you know we're dealing with software robots here not not physical robots um but nevertheless you know armed forces i mean i'm, I'm ex-arming myself you know the, i read a report that that the current british army um would last less than three days on the battlefield now less than three days using the kit that it's currently got um because the advent of intelligent automated weapon systems um, is on its way. You know, you look at Boston Dynamics and you know the, their friendly robots. Those friendly robots can get very unfriendly very quickly. Um, and and so in terms of war fighting, um, then then you know the, the the time of the poor bloody infantry that was me uh, and, and uh, the, the people I work with. You know, they need to utilize technology in a much more effective way for self-preservation of performing us. Um, but the three the three laws in terms of software robots, in terms of business, is equally important because it's also about psychological as opposed to physical safety. And the psychological safety is just as important um, uh, for, for workers, for individuals. And, and we'll increasingly see automation move into, as we have done, with the physical robots, you know, like the, the, the Roomba um, 
hoovers that uh, that go around and uh, and you know I, I read a lovely story about uh, about how the cats of a particular family um, just think that the the Roomba is just a phenomenally stupid cat uh, and they don't see any difference so it just becomes invisible after a while um, and I think that as automation AI becomes a standard or it already is um, when we started talking, um, Siri launched itself because it thought I was looking for a telephone number. You know, they, it's listening all the time and an AI becomes a part of our everyday lives and becomes ubiquitous, then it will cease to become scary or just be the way that we operate as, 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 as the human race. Okay, great. Well, while you were talking, I googled what the three laws of robotics were. And just, just Okay, so the rule one is first do no harm. Rule two is, if I remember it, um, do what you're told. Uh, and uh, the third, by the human. And the third rule, as I remember it, is um, self-preservation, is, is, uh, providing you don't break the first two rules. Is that it? Exactly right. The only difference is <laughs> the second rule, rule they must they do what they're told, unless it means... Um, um, breaking first that's wrong yeah 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 <laughs> what about data um other dangers in data i'm thinking racist data misogynistic data you know and can rpa play a role there um uh, maybe it can't but, but 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 do you have any thoughts about that um, rpa rpa not uh because rpa is all to do with the process hence the name robotic process automation is all about processing um but the, the intelligence, I use that word advisedly, between um, uh, in, involved in the uh, algorithms that run those processes um, and the decision-making um, is open to bias in the same, exactly the same way that it is for the humans that either do it today or the humans that actually wrote the algorithm in the first place. Um, so ensuring that those biases are not built into the system, which we have you know quite a lot of examples where it it has gone wrong um it's something that needs to be watched very very carefully um there is a in the financial times the other day i was reading a, a or in fact watching it was a video that was done on um there was an interview between a um uh effectively a he doesn't say who he is but part of the government uh, interviewing a a lady barrister um, after this is set after um, the COVID uh, crisis is, is finished, um, and you know the, she has actually gone out um, during lockdown to meet someone, and uh, she became a um, a uh, typhoid Mary. Uh, you know, uh, became a um, you know, patient zero in that case, and then there was a there was a. A breakout uh, or an outbreak around her, um, and um, the technology that was discussed in that video, although it's uh, although it was fictional, um, it was written as a script um, and dramatized. The technology behind it already exists, and the interlinking between government departments and um, you know, our watches and phones and things that track us and CCTV and all the rest of it is already here. And in fact, if you look at the Chinese uh, economy and Chinese society, they're gamifying that. So if you are a good model citizen, then you actually get awarded points or, you know, the, um, the social awarded. credit system, isn't it? I think it's precisely it's the social yeah. credit. They're gamifying obedience. And this is this was this video was all about essentially, uh, not about China, it was about UK. But um, but the technology already exists. So we so bias and um, and algorithms um, are just as dangerous as you know someone with their own either racist or sexist or um, uh, you know viewpoint of the world. Um, so protecting against that is going to be very, very important. And that is the job of the regulators and government. Next question about demographics. So, you know, in the West and in certain other countries like China, we're going to have a problem in a few years time because the population or the working age population is going to be falling. 
I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be happening in China, but fairly soon, I think. And I think in Italy, it's probably already happened. It's already happened in Japan and it will happen throughout yeah. much of Europe and the United States and so on. So can, can RPA and similar technologies play a role here? Um, uh, yes, and it already is. I mean, the, the reason you, you mentioned Japan, the reason that that RPA has been so uh, adopted so fast in Japan is exactly that. You know, there's the demographic time bomb. <laughs> and I've written about this before, you know, the, the, the silver tsunami. Um, the, essentially what's happened is that the, the Japanese population peaked in 2010. Um, and so the entire Japanese population is falling. Um, and people of my age and older are now retiring. Um, so the baby boomer um, community and uh, are, are leaving the workforce. Um, so the amount of work that people have to do in an office in Japan, the average Japanese worker, office worker works 60 hours a week and the Japanese government defined dangerous levels of overwork as more than 106 hours a week. Um, and, and there's a word in, in Japanese, which is karoshi, which means to work oneself to death or suicide through overwork. And that happens quite frequently. And in fact, it happened to one of our customers. So, so automation is the only way that they can deal with that because they just don't have the people uh, to do the, the, the amount of work. So what we're seeing in Japan uh, today will be replicated in every industrial and post-industrial nation over the next 30 years. Um, it, it, so the adoption of RPA will massively increase, not because of anything that the vendors are doing, but, but just because it, it, will be a, it will be the only way that organizations can effectively run themselves. So Lotus123 was market dominant, and then Microsoft came along with Excel, yeah. Word, and Axis, I think it was their database product. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, Lotus123 disappeared, I think. Yeah. Um, Microsoft, well, yeah. Are in, Microsoft are entering the RPA market. Yes, Is, they are in the RPA. They are in the RPA market. Is there a parallel there? With uh, Are the, the existing RPA companies like Lotus123, do you think? Uh, yeah, in fact, I'm, uh, I was talking to a, a colleague about this uh, last night, um, and a Microsoft, uh, I, uh, the exact phrase I used was Microsoft is a beast, but it's not a very focused beast. Um, so Microsoft comes up with ideas um, that are really good for, um, for individuals. You know, companies companies to use. Uh, you know, there are there are Microsoft first. Um, they will look at Power Automate, which is their which is their product, um, because it's free. Um, now it's only free for uh, connecting applications that are in the Microsoft world in the in their ecosystem. Um, if you want to connect Salesforce with SAP, you have to actually pay. Um, a, a license for, for to use Power Automate, but for <clears throat> you know moving information between Access and Excel and Outlook and all the rest of it, yeah, it's, it's really good. <clears throat> um, but Microsoft is a master of co-opetition. Um, there's a great Paul Mendo for you. Um, so they compete with organisations, but they also partner with them, and. Because most of UiPath's cloud customers are operating on Azure, and Microsoft is making, frankly, a huge amount of money from running UiPath on Azure uh, cloud platforms for, for, for customers, much, much more than their, the revenues they're making from, from Power Automate. So although they, they want to enter the market because they see the Thing which I can't talk about, which is the TAM, the total addressable market, and the opportunities. And by the way, I think that Salesforce and Amazon and Google are going to join them uh, with acquisitions um, in that space, um, in the RPA space. Um, the revenues that they generated in 2020, this is this is Gartner data, um, was less than $17 million. And if they give it away, you know, as a loss leader, let's try and encourage people to use it. Um, then that revenue is not going to go up. So you know, Microsoft is very good at generating revenue. Um, so you know, if it wants to move into the market, we are taking them extraordinarily seriously. Um, if they were going to compete with us like for like, but at the moment we're not seeing that. But without a shadow of a doubt, you know, it's it, it's 
probably the organisation that we're keeping our, our eye on most closely. Okay, and then the last question is about Guy Kirkwood. So you're moving on to uh, Pastures New. What, uh, what does the future hold for, for Guy? Well, it's, it, you know, it, it, you couldn't be more right. So when you say Pastures New. Um, so I have done, I, mean, I, was, I was interviewed by a journalist um, who said, take me through your career. And I laughed at them and said, you know, I haven't had a career. I've had a collection of jobs. Uh, and those collection of jobs, by the way, is software company at university uh, in computer-based training, um, then into publishing, uh, worked for a magazine publisher, uh, then into the army. Um, I was serving in Scots Guards for four years, which was a great time. Um, then into um, uh, recruitment, into headhunting. <clears throat> and, and I set up my own business then. Then into consulting, then into outsourcing, where I spent you know 20 years doing business process outsourcing. For various companies and then into into automation so it's only in the last six years that i've been in, been in automation um so you know, what i've spotted is that if we talked about the deindustrialization, is that that people are wanting to escape the office now a lot of people can't do that i'm extraordinarily fortunate to be able to do that so that's exactly what i'm doing i am moving to pastures new and I'm moving into farming. So um, I'm retiring from UiPath at the end of the month. Um, in fact, you're the, other than internally, you're the first people to, to know this. Um, and uh, the analysts will know because that's what we deal with on a daily basis. But, um, but uh, so I'm going to Harper Adams uh, to do the Rural Estate and Land Management course um, over a couple of years um, as a master's. Um, and then I'm uh, going to go into farming with my daughter because my daughter's doing a BSc in agriculture uh, at Plymouth University, actually at Dutchie College, um, just the other side of the Tamar in uh, in Cornwall, uh, and we're going to go into farming together. So we're going to do mixed and um, uh, and diversified uh, farming operation. So um, big change, but you know that doesn't mean that I'm not going to look at automation um, because uh, you know as we look at uh, becoming efficient and, and cost effective. Um, there are numerous ways that we can look at uh, automation. And in fact, there's a great company that I'm talking to called the Small Robot Company, um, who are uh, producing um, agricultural robots for, uh, for agricultural uh, sort of um, arable uh, farming, which I'm looking at at the moment. So, um, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that anyone that has been following me on, on LinkedIn for for all these years, it's going to be interesting in farming, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep my LinkedIn profile um, updated so anyone that's interested can follow me on that. Many thanks to Guy for spending time with us and best of luck as you embark on your new adventures in agriculture. Thanks to everyone else for listening in and we welcome you to join us on future broadcasts as we speak to even more inspirational companies and their leaders.